Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AdDot podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today, my guest is Tomas Jaskula. We've known each other for quite a long time, in uh, programmer years anyway, and uh, probably close to a decade now. And you probably know Tomas from uh, our book that we've written together in my Addison Wesley's signature series. Tomas is my co-author of Strategic Monoliths and Microservices. And uh, we've also consulted together and done training together and um, mostly around domain-driven design. Tomas is our uh, Kalele official certified trainer for the French and Polish languages. So, Tomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Vaughn, uh, for having me on the podcast, and uh, hello, everyone. So today, um, we're going to have, a, I think, a, quite an informative discussion, starting with functional programming, functional architecture, and how those can be used to support domain-driven design. And then we'll talk a bit about some of the highlights um, from our book, Strategic Monoliths and Microservices, and uh, you know, kind of what stood out to you, Tomas, um, that you contributed to the book. And finally, we'll go into a rather advanced topic of bitemporal models. So let's get started with functional programming and architecture. You just finished your first uh, DDD with functional programming and architecture workshop for our company, Kalele. What is your background in functional programming and architecture? Uh, yes, yeah, so I started like many of us uh, to work and use object-oriented programming. And uh, it was around, around 2001 after I graduated from university and uh, it took many years uh, to learn and all the related patterns and best practice. So uh, I've been using object-oriented uh, programming for more than 20 years now, but at some point uh, I felt that the, there has to be uh, another way of solving problems. And um, uh, I was always struggling with the way how object-oriented programs were built. Uh, so I'm talking about uh, dependencies between different objects that were very deep and inheritance that was overused or misused. And uh, I think it's like a decade ago um, when, uh, I, I mean, it's not the first time I heard about uh, functional programming, but I started to, to learn it. And... Uh, uh, I wanted to learn more about functional programming because uh, I heard it had a different approach uh, of dealing with different uh, problems uh, with, with the problems I had with object orientation. So uh, at, at that time, uh, there was a lot of traction in different communities and uh, functional programming became uh, popular. And we had uh, new languages like F-Sharp and uh, Scala. It was already established uh, quite a bit. Uh, but uh, uh, it was a great time to, to learn um, 
a different uh, paradigm. And uh, I started to play with F-sharp, Scala, and even Haskell, although I've never used Haskell in the professional context. But what I wanted is to have a broader view and understanding of how functional programming paradigm um, can help me uh, and uh, with different uh, with, with business problems and uh, without the complexity I knew from the object orientation. So that's how I started and uh, immediately uh, when I uh, learned um, the most important uh, uh, functional programming principles, it resonated with me and uh, and yeah, so that's how I, I started to learn and apply functional programming in every life. I think that maybe a, a good way to describe functional programming or how it's distinguished from object-oriented programming or procedural programming is that it's uh, called a declarative approach to programming. Can you explain what a declarative programming language is? What does that mean? Yeah, so let me just uh, highlight what the functional programming is uh, uh, first. So functional programming uh, is uh, the process of building software when you compose uh, pure functions and you try to avoid shared state and uh, side effects. So declarative programming, uh, because it's not uh, only related to functional programming, although it's a very important characteristic, uh, means that program logic is expressed without explicitly describing the flow control, where imperative programs um, uh, spend lines of code describing the specific steps used to achieve the desired results. And uh, this is the uh, flow control we, we talk about. And in other words, uh, it describes how to do things where declarative programs abstract the flow control process and instead um, describe the data flow and in other words, we can say um, what a program does. So the, 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 the whole flow is abstracted away. And uh, how, it's, how this is important from the programmer's point of view, it's most of the time, uh, I, I don't know he, who um, uh, gave those numbers first, but... Uh, there, there is a saying that 80% uh, of time a programmer is reading the code and only 20% is writing the code. So from the programmer's point of view, this, the distinction is very important because um, we don't need to understand each step and how uh, the data flows from one step to another. Uh, in the simplest scenario, uh, in imperative language, uh, even in the simplest scenario, the data is mutated inside the specific steps. Uh, so uh, in order to understand the, the logic, we need to dig deeper 
and to go inside uh, the implementation of different steps to to understand what happens and it adds a lot of cog cognitive load uh, because each time we go deeper into each specific step we have to sort of uh, put uh, on the internal brain stack um, the current state of the execution and we have to analyze this uh, in our brains oh, where with declarative programming we are not supposed to undergo the same process and uh, we are supposed to understand the program because we focus uh, focus on the inputs and outputs of different functions and how they compose together. So that's the most important distinction between declarative and imperative programs. Good. Yeah, good. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking of an example of how to kind of visualize declarative programming. And like you said, you're using pure functions. Let's say that we have a type A and uh, a type B, and we have a function, let's call it a convert, because it just makes it simple to reason about. So the function named convert takes a parameter or argument of type A, and it returns the converted type A into a type B, so it returns the type B after converting it. And then you could say that you have a, uh, a value um, that can be assigned the result of the convert function from A to B. And so the value that would be set on that, uh, the, the value that would be set into that uh, value um, reference would be an instance of B. So you could say that you declare the B as converted a, a conversion of A to B. And I just kind of think of that like, oh, that's making a declaration. And we do that a lot in object-oriented programming, but um, probably we can't count on the uh, what happens inside the method that where we get a value to assign to be um, completely side effect free. So that brings up the the subject of side effect free behavior. Um, is is yes. that like a decent example? You think first of all? Yes, yes, yes. This is exactly how um, this um, data flow uh, I descri described earlier works, because uh, what it boils down, in fact, uh, what what is a function if we just uh, take as, a, as an example the simplest function uh, it just um, transforms inputs to the outputs and uh, that's um, that way uh, we can just fo focus on the inputs and the outputs and if we know that the function is pure it means that it will all the time uh, return 
the same uh, values for uh, a given uh, inputs. But to give a, a better understanding, we can uh, come up with a different example as well. So let's say we have a list of numbers and what we would like to do is just to double um, each number uh, it, and that will be our result. So most of the time in the imperative way of thinking, what we would do is to loop uh, over this uh, input uh, list of um, values and uh, inside this loop we would multiply each uh, number by two and we would store the result in in a different list that we will uh, we would return to the caller so that's the imperative way of thinking because the loop uh, is a kind of a sequence that you have to work over to 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 understand what's happening in uh, in the execution of the program and in the uh, functional programming, the declarative way, uh, we said that uh, those steps of how we um, do that is abstracted away, the flow control is abstracted away. So uh, most of the time, uh, functional program, uh, programming languages have this function which is called map, and uh, map, uh, the, the name uh, it's already a hint because it says we will map input values to some output values and and uh, the 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 mapping and how we will do that is is irrelevant however we need to provide not only the, uh, as input the values that we want to map but also the function that will uh, map those values to the outputs. So in that case, if we want to multiply, we would say, here is the function to multiply an element by two, and and uh, here is the list of input elements, and map, map them to the output. And that's how, uh, with declarative programming, you can just solve the same problem with just one line of code, where in imperative uh, style, you would need to write five or six lines of, of, of code. But I mean, uh, the number of lines of code, it's not the most important thing. I just want to highlight that for this simple uh, use case, you have to go through the imperative code and understand how the execution of each line is uh, working in order to understand what the function is doing. So that's a very important difference and, and uh, an aspect of uh, function, functional and imperative programming to, to understand the declarative. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, good. And just to kind of connect the dots, the function that I referred to as convert could actually be map in this case, right? So map takes an A, and answers a b exactly um, so we're, we're just mapping one to another now an interesting thing about map is basically what you do is 
um, you map over, let's say, a collection for one. You can map over anything, but let's say that you say, uh, I want to map this collection to a different collection. And how we do that is we, um, in essence, pass the collection and a function um, to the map function itself. And the function that we pass as an argument um, is the function that actually does the conversion, the, the mapping from A to B. And for every element in the collection, uh, map that, that function that you've passed it will be called um, with the parameter of the collection, the, let's say list of type A's, and the map function that you pass in, or the, the function that will do the mapping, will convert each of the A's to the B's. Um, now, it's also important to understand that you don't have to return a, an actual different type. It could be, like you said, a conversion or a mapping from uh, a list of numbers that you want to double and so the, the list that you would get back is actually still a list of, let's say, integers, right? Um, yeah. And you pass in a list of integers. So you're not actually um, necessarily converting from A to B as in completely different types, but B just represents that there is a, uh, a new output for what you passed in as input. So yeah. the doubling is just iterating essentially and calling that map method, and then you multiply the the parameter to the map method um, by two, right? And that returns, and then what you get out of that is a new collection. With, mm. yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think the the important uh, information here is that in in fact. In fact, you can uh, the, the the function is the simplest building block uh, in functional programming, and uh, you can use the function composition uh, to build bigger parts of uh, of uh, of software. And uh, the function composition uh, you have to take care that the input of uh, the function that follows has to match the out output of the function that precedes. So this is the way how uh, programs are built. But uh, but yeah, th this example with map uh, doesn't necessarily mean you have to return like a different set of types. Uh, just uh, you know. Uh, it, it was just to highlight how this declarative um, programming uh, is different from imperative one. But uh, you said before, uh, and we didn't uh, uh, said what what was side effect because uh, side effect um, is uh, something that we cannot uh, really avoid and is in fact very useful but uh, uh, let's just uh, um, say that 
a PR function uh, is uh, is a function that, as we said before, for a given uh, um, inputs will return the same output all the time and has no side effect. So what is the side effect? Um, a side effect is uh, any um, describes any applic um, application state change that is observable outside the called function uh, other than its return value. So for example, when a function is uh, writing to the screen or uh, writing to a file or database or a network or calling out other functions with side effects, but also uh, calling to timers or lagging or, you know, or modifying even an external variable or object property. This is all the side effects because, for example, modifying uh, external variable, it's uh, changing a global, uh, you know, changing the variable in outside of the function scope chain. So side effects, for that reason, side effects have to be isolated from the rest of the software. Uh, keeping them separate from the rest of the program logic makes the software much easier to extend, refactor, debug, and maintain in the end. Um, and the reason why side effects are bad if we just mix them uh, everywhere in the software uh, with this, uh, program logic and uh, etc. is that um, they can be unpredictable depending on the state of the system and you can you could have like exception uh, uh, thrown in different parts of uh, uh, your program where they are not supposed supposed to occur so that's why it's very important to uh, to know where the side effects occur and Functional programming uh, makes the side effects explicit. So that's the big difference between functional programming and object-oriented programming, where often side effects are mixed in different programs, logic, and you know uh, scopes. Uh, so yes, that's a very important distinction to, to yeah. understand. Good. And I was thinking too that you might even refer to like what, what is referred to as the IO monad, right? Um, what it actually does is it causes effects on a database or on the screen as you gave uh, an example. So I think of a side effect as something that happens in addition to what you asked for. Like you might not even know it you, you could find out later that the side effect happened, but you may not be aware of it just by, um, you know, calling a method. Um, mm -hmm. But I think more, and I, not not to say that, any, you know, referring to a side effect is incorrect for the monad, the IO monad, for example, but I think of it as an effect in that, it is supposed to cause an effect 
and instead of a side effect as in something you didn't expect, right? Mm -hmm. um, so maybe just that little nuance of um, description can help others understand, ah, I see that, you know, there are things that are supposed to cause effects and those are explicit, like you were saying, right? Now you know that we are absolutely doing this effect. Yes, and 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 IO Monet because um, the 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 problem before the IO Monets uh, were that I mean theoretically uh, you just I I mean the the software executes on hardware and different things uh, can happen uh, and unexpected behavior can be uh, uh, you know can occur uh, so there you know so we can no longer say that we have uh, pure functions from the beginning to the end however uh, iomonets uh, wraps these um, side effects uh, and the programs uh, remains functionally pure and referentially transparent. Uh, what does it mean to be referentially transparent is that you can replace a function call with its resulting value without changing the meaning of the program. So, uh, uh, in a way, IO monads are uh, there. This is a pattern to wrap different side effects inside, so we can still have pure, uh, purely functional and referentially transparent software that you can test from the end to end. So, but it means that uh, there are different kind of monads and uh, each monad can wrap a different effect inside. And you have means in functional programming to compose them in a way that uh, you have the uh, software um, that, have that deals with different uh, uh, effects like uh, asynchrony, uh, IO, uh, transaction and uh, all other sort of uh, effects that you can uh, imagine. So yes, this is a very useful pattern in, in functional program. And you have quite a bit of experience with F Sharp. I think it's sort of your um, go-to functional language or one that you really enjoy using. How is IO handled with F Sharp? Yeah, so I remember that uh, when I started to learn F Sharp, it was more than a decade ago. The uh, we were referring in the community uh, to Monad as the M thing because we um, the community didn't want to focus on. Uh, different, uh, you know, functional uh, patterns, not because they are not useful, but because they wanted to be pragmatic and they wanted um, so so people can use F-Sharp to solve uh, different problems in a functional way without 
uh, you know, um, deep diving into functional programming and all the patterns. Because let's be honest, if you start with truly purely functional language like Haskell, the you know the learning curve is is steep, and it's not easy you know to start with to to be you know um, fully um, uh, how to say you know to master the, the the language the environment and all the patterns that are related to functional programming. So in F sharp there is a something that is called computation expression that is a kind of syntax for different computations that you can have, which is quite unique. Uh, and uh, it provides like a direct uh, syntactic support for different types of computations, monoids, uh, usual monads, monad plus, and, and all other uh, uh, different kind of usages, because it's much more just than uh, than a monad, but it's um, it's very you know uh, central uh, part of the language. It's not complicated to understand. You don't need to to understand the whole mathematical background, and you can like uh, of course learn those uh, later. And uh, but you can like start using the language uh, from the beginning and. And uh, so the, the pragmatic approach of F-Sharp is something that I like uh, until now. Yeah, let's, let's deliver software, right? Yes, the, that's... That's the, <laughs> that's the attitude. It's not um, be pretentious about the mathematics of writing software. And, uh, you know, I, I don't disagree with the fact that people who use functional programming like mathematics, and a lot of them are very successful mathematicians. Um, but there's also this sort of emphasis on, in order to really understand functional programming, you have to learn category theory and type theory. Otherwise, go hang it up. And In fact, I had someone actually tell me that I should go back to university and um, get a math degree so that I could know how to actually program in Haskell correctly. And I thought to myself, well, how practical is that, you know? Um, yeah. And then four to six years later, I can get an entry-level programming job with a language that may not even be relevant anymore. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it. I mean, we don't know how things are going to work out. I would say that there was a big push toward using Haskell maybe even five years ago. Everything was Haskell, Haskell, Haskell. I don't hear much about Haskell today. I'm not saying that it's irrelevant, but point being, do you really have to be a mathematician to use functional programming in a practical way where you can deliver software with it, right? End results. And, well, first of all, let me just get your reply to that. What do you think? Yes, 
I think that uh, you don't need to be a success, successful mathematician to to apply successfully uh, category theory and, and type theory to to software development, and and hopefully it's not the case because uh, I mean many people uh, doing functional programming they learn different. Uh, how, I mean principles and uh, aspects of uh, and, and theory behind the functional programming uh, years or months later after they started to use functional programming so uh, that's uh, not like a requirement but I, I think the most important aspects to understand are that you have to know where the side effects occur and you have to avoid mutation of data. So that's why uh, having a support from a functional language where by default we have uh, on first uh, immutability is very important. And, uh, and uh, function composition where you can uh, compose uh, from the smallest function mapping outputs of functions to inputs of, of other functions and in that way you create uh, bigger chunks of software uh, so I, I think that that are the most important uh, uh, principles that you have to be aware of to to start with functional programming and then if you are interested in category theory you can go deeper and and uh, learn more about it but i, I think the, we have to be very productive and uh, you know and it doesn't mean that if you are um, uh, making you know uh, software that is aligned very well uh, with all the principles uh, in uh, theoretical principles it will be easier to read for other people or to understand so yeah it's always you you cannot assume that the people that will read the same piece of software have exactly the same theoretical knowledge to understand what happens there so yeah, yeah it's it's I think it's too um, a little hmm. dangerous. Um, I mean, some things that I've been told, for example, is, well, you can't really talk about set theory because set theory is wrong. Well, how is it wrong? Well, and I, if I recall correctly, set theory is wrong because um, for set theory to be true, you would have to be able to have a set of all sets. And so at this sort of universal level with, you know, innumerable possibilities of sets of all sets, okay, set theory is wrong, <laughs> but set theory is practical. And in fact, one big part of category theory is the category of sets. And okay, what does that mean? that 
category theory is wrong because it has a wrong theory attached to it, right? Or category attached to it. I don't know. It, it just seems like some of these things are completely impractical. But to make a point out of this, a lot of functional programmers who are into the sort of mathematical, um, you know, strengths of functional programming, category theory, type theory, and so forth, they claim that you can mathematically prove that your function is correct, and therefore your entire program is absolutely correct, bug-free, da-da-da-da, right? Just whatever that means. Can you talk about, like, what is the potential of actually even knowing whether, uh, I know we've discussed this before, so it's, I don't, you know, I'm not going to throw you off, but what is the potential of actually literally proving that a function is mathematically correct and then an entire program of functions? I, I mean, uh, you can prove, uh, and I think there are fields uh, where this is actually very important to be able to prove that uh, what was written uh, is uh, it aligns exactly with, with with the proof because I was uh, speaking to someone who is working in you know in uh, they they are making software for planes and so they have like three years uh, release plans before something can actually go to the plane and uh, and he said that not you know uh, it's not even their job to to do the proof but they're like calling into external companies they are sending the binary code with all these, you know, uh, constraints and uh, that has to that uh, that have to be met, and those external companies are writing um, like they are trying to uh, run the proofs over the code that was written to to say that there is no uh, bugs or anything uh, that can happen. Uh, so. But, you know, this takes a lot of time and uh, a lot of effort. But it's in that case, it's, it's worth because, you know, uh, I cannot imagine like a bigger bag in, on a plane that, uh, will, that could uh, put the, the plane down. But, but uh, when you are writing uh, application, for uh, I know business line uh, uh, software, I don't think there is a big interest of saying that you can prove that your application uh, is bug free, and and also it's very difficult uh, to uh, say because your application may be very good and uh, pass all the proofs but it may not uh, you know be the expectation of the business people or user because we have missed uh, opportunity to integrate 
um, changes that uh, they, uh, you know, uh, that the, the business uh, software was supposed to have because uh, the market environment uh, is constantly changing. There are, you know, new legal uh, constraints and uh, the software and the requirements are all the time evolving. So uh, you would need to keep all those proofs aligned all the time. And I think it would require too much uh, effort and I don't think it would be very useful. That's why uh, I would say the pragmatism in that case is the good guide. And uh, for example, that's why I, I like F-Sharp because it's really pragmatic and you can really go fast uh, writing beautiful code, functional code, and do not bother with all those different uh, theoretical concepts from uh, you know, category theory and, and stuff. Absolutely. And I think that, again, we're here talking about using functional programming and functional architecture for benefit, right? So we're not knocking that in any way, but to overemphasize the, the mathematical proof of correctness, we could say it's possible, but is it practical? Yes. Um, and, and even, you know, I don't know what uh, one major airline has done with those services, um, improving their airline or their aircraft, certain aircraft is safe, but obviously if, it, if they did go through that, it was, there was definitely a hole in the mathematical proof of the correctness of that code and its cost people's lives. So I would highly doubt that that was functional code anyway, but I don't know. I think the point, though, that I'm trying to make is this huge buildup of expectation about math and various theories of mathematical proof. It's good to know about it, but it shouldn't be a barrier of entry to someone who wants to benefit pragmatically from the primary benefits of functional programming, side effect free behavior, immutability, right? And, but now, Let's talk just a bit about, from a practical standpoint, I think this fits in with the F-sharp approach. What are the benefits of architecturally using functional programming where it counts most, but then also backing away from functional programming so that we can ship software and understand the program? I think that if we talk about architecture, so... Uh, most of the uh, architecture uh, patterns that we use, uh, they, we agree that they have to uh, align with the business um, expectations and needs. So uh, the best way uh, today is that domain-driven design can help somehow uh, to emphasize uh, the composability and uh, autonomy of the different subsystems. And uh, in here I'm talking about, uh, for example, bounded contexts. Uh, but functional programming languages automatically guide you to write composable and autonomous uh, code because, uh, you know, there is no mutable state and no side effects. 
I mean, they are explicit. So th this is like this alignment that I see between uh, functional programming and architecture, uh, where uh, we compose smaller parts of the subsystems into bigger parts and applying the same principles of transforming inputs to the outputs and can look at um, these uh, th those big systems that we have as kind of you know functional uh, components that play a certain role in different business user processes and it's like uh, you know big picture uh, of uh, how functional programming uh, works on the implementation level so that's the relationship i i, I see between those two uh, approaches of uh, of designing uh, functional architecture or designing functional software functional with functional programming language and then there's the way we, we talk about this in the book, and I think it's a good segue to talk about some of the highlights of the book. But one thing that you contributed significantly to was the you know proper definition of ports and adapters or hexagonal architecture, but not just the pure definition, but also the versatility of how to use that architecture. And one of those options is... Uh, functional core um, imperative shell. Can you describe that and what, what are the benefits of that? Yeah, so the functional core imperative shell, the first time I heard uh, about it, it was uh, several years ago and I think it was described by uh, Gary Bernard and uh, uh, this pattern enable us to use uh, functional programming uh, for what it does the best and uh, to use imperative uh, programming for uh, all the messy, mutable, side-effectful uh, code um, that uh, most of uh, application software uh, need to fulfill any meaningful uh, use case. I think this architectural pattern uh, is very nice because it's it provides a clear separation between uh, the two programming styles, uh, which can coexist uh, in, in the same uh, application. So uh, the functional core imperative shell uh, for me is kind of similar to hexagonal architecture for cent adapters, but it's uh, simplified uh, and uh, we can say that the most important principles around is that there is a core with the business logic and uh, the shell that uh, handles interactions with the outside world. So interactions with the outside world is all the side effects uh, we were um, talking about earlier. So this involves uh, persisting data to databases, providing UI, uh, yes, and, and, and everything uh, that has to do with uh, side effects. And the shell, the imperative shell, can uh, call the core 
uh, but the core uh, cannot call uh, to the shell. Uh, so uh, the core is even not aware of the ex existence of the shell. So that's the simplest dependency rule between the imperative shell and function core. And it means that the functional core can be written in purely functional way. And this is very easy to test because we don't need any mocks, any stops. Uh, we just have pure function. We pass data in and out and there are no side effects. And on the other hand, the imperative shell provides the data from the external sources or sends data to the external sources. Uh, and the goal is to keep the imperative shell as thin as uh, possible because uh, we don't want to have uh, a very big part of software that is uh, doing the side effecting stuff or, you know. So um, that, that's why I think this this pattern is uh, really helpful uh, because it's simple and uh, it allows to have uh, on, on one hand a really functional and purely functional uh, domain logic and imperative shell which is just orchestrating use cases around the uh, functional core. Yeah, so. good. And it's really... Um I think it's very practical. Again, it's about shipping software and using, you know, leveraging the right language, the right uh, paradigm in the right places. And just one other thing before diving into more book uh, topics, I just wanted to point out and ask you also about this, but um, actually using functional programming style is possible with an object-oriented language. While the language doesn't help you to remain declarative-only and side-effect-free, it's still possible with discipline to accomplish that. So you could use Java or C-sharp or another imperative language or even a hybrid language like Kotlin, for example, um, and, and accomplish that. So how do you watch out for things like reassignment of variables and let's say collections, collections in, in the standard libraries are definitely effectful. And, uh, you know, a lot of just the standard libraries are based on imperative and side effects, right? So, or effects. So what do we do about those situations? I think many mainstream languages since many years get functional lang uh, programming language features. So for example, if I talk about c -sharp, it started with Lambda, functions and uh, we had other uh, link um, language uh, addition which you know uh, helps you to write uh, software in a declarative way but it, it was not very uh, practical to write a functional code functional uh, with the functional programming style code because uh, by default everything was uh, mutable and you could use the standard libraries, collections everywhere. And the, the, the team using the language um, has to have a big uh, discipline around topics, not using or imitating stuff or, you know, or using maybe static 
uh, code analysis uh, to uh, check if there are no uh, unexpected calls or you know uh, usages of uh, different uh, libraries or collections but it was still not very practical to write it it relied more on the discipline of teams than on the language itself where functional programming by default wants people to respect and align with functional programming principles so immutability and uh, provides uh, data structures that are immutable by default so this is also changing since some years uh, even in the language uh, like C sharp because uh, I think the latest version got data structures uh, like records uh, which are immutable by default so uh, it becomes easier to write a functional uh, code but no nothing can be solved uh, you know writing a purely functional code uh, without you know uh, being disciplined and aware of uh, what's uh, happening because it's not a functional uh, programming language and you st still have to use uh, objects to compose bigger um, uh, programs and until the language uh, gets like the separation between data and functions which is not the case we have objects in c-sharp uh, people uh, will always struggle to to write functional purely functional code in in, in a language that is not uh, built for uh, that but it's easier and many principles are just useful in any language true and there are libraries that you can get like uh, in java there's Vaver or Vaver, whatever your accent is, and and uh, what's the other thing that you can use to, you know, basically make your uh, program feel a lot like a uh, functional programming language. Even you know, like I think uh, Vaver has uh, list collections that are you know just like the list collection in Haskell, um, Headtail, and you can derive new collections from that. And what's really interesting about the functional collections is because of immutability, it's safe to reuse elements in multiple collections, right? You, you don't have to worry about, oh, if I don't create a brand new element for this collection, if that gets changed, it gets changed in all collections, right? And well, you just simply can't change it. So that gives you know a lot of leverage to how you can actually implement and derive new collections from existing collections and so forth. So um, big advantages. Well, let's talk for a bit about one other topic that you provided extensive insight into in our book, Strategic Monoliths and Microservices. And that is the dry principle. Do not, don't repeat yourself, right? Don't repeat yourself. And I would say that probably most of the world's programmers think they understand what dry means, but they don't actually. Can you talk about what dry really means and what its purpose is? Yeah, so dry, don't repeat yourself, uh, states that 
you should not repeat some aspects uh, in different places but what aspects uh, are we talking about is it's and and this is where the difference is because um, don't repeat yourself was never about the code most of the tooling enforces this you know for example by telling you that this piece of code is similar to another one uh, in a different place and 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 it's useful but it's not how the try principle works because don't repeat yourself is about the knowledge and the knowledge uh, it's what determines and that uh, for example let's say uh, if we have a certain business uh, rule that uh, has to be enforced into different places i know if you have an e-commerce uh, shop and there is a business rule uh, about uh, you know the quantity of uh, products or maybe the total amount of products that you can order and you have a similar rule uh, in a context of i know uh, billing where you check the same rule that you cannot bill if the total amount exceeds some certain value you would tend to say okay i could just like provide this business rule to those two different contexts and and i would avoid duplicating it in, in different places but if we just say that those two pieces of code represents different knowledge we are not repeating it because what does it mean uh, this is not the same knowledge if we are in the ordering context and in the billing context we have certainly uh, different uh, the, the rule may change under different context and different constraints and that's why uh, business has to be free uh, in changing those two rules independently even if from the first side it seems that this is the same rule that is being duplicated into different contexts so the knowledge determines if we are you know repeating some kind of code or rule in different places and not the code uh, itself so like you said uh, maybe one example of of dry is definitely if there's a bank account holder or a bank customer who um, has a checking account and they write a check that causes an overdraft on the account, they're going to be charged a fee for that. Would it be fair to say that the knowledge for charging the fee um, and the calculation for that belongs in just one place? Uh, yeah, I think it depends. Uh, I mean, it depends on the knowledge in that way, but you could say... Uh, for example, uh, that if the fee calculation is undergo uh, a unique rule for the company, you could you could just uh, leave it in a one one place. And the, if there is like a repetition or you know the duplication of of this rule in different places, it's a sign that you are duplicating knowledge. But I think. You can detect that because if the rule changes and you're 
updating the same code in different uh, places, it means that maybe because the knowledge is the same, the knowledge is duplicated in different places. So that's that's how I would uh, I would see it. What's your take on that one? Well, I would say that if repeating it would cause the customer to lose money that they shouldn't have lost, like being overcharged, or if it caused the bank to be, you know, undercompensated for that overdraft, then that would be incorrect. I I don't know that there is one clear answer, and I think that's the point of my question is, as always, yeah. it depends, right? Yeah. But we'd certainly, when dealing with life, uh, as you mentioned with the airlines, uh, air- aircraft, medical, and then after that financial, certainly have to think very carefully about that. And having programmers making those decisions is just horrible. That's why domain-driven design counts so much is it, it uh, if used properly, we would go to the business and ask all those questions and make sure that we, if it's a wrong decision, the wrong decision is on the business and they will gladly adjust to that. Whereas if you're some rogue programmer just making up the rules and um, because you need to get the job done or whatever, well, you know, how many, how, how much uh, loss can you afford? you know, for, for being responsible for that kind of uh, bad decision. So closely related to the knowledge of represented by dry is the idea of tacit knowledge and knowledge sharing. And this, I think, segues right from that topic, which was also another major contribution that you made to the book. Can you explain tacit knowledge and knowledge sharing and what are the consequences of not sharing knowledge and keeping knowledge to oneself and and how do we share knowledge properly ah, yes so that's that's a very broad topic uh, indeed but in every company you have this explicit knowledge and tacit knowledge and tacit knowledge is just inside people's head and uh, when you are working on a software uh, you have to address some business problem by providing a solution to, to, to it. And the solution is the working software. But it has to align with the users and business people expectation. And uh, how do you know uh, if your software aligns with it or not? You have to understand what are the needs and what are you know the um, company use cases and and how company is uh, run so you need to have the knowledge of the business uh, and domain uh, in uh, which the software is uh, developed and once you you know that you have to learn and uh, to discover the knowledge it's uh, just a half halfway through because knowledge discovery happens usually when you discuss with the business expert and teammates uh, with uh, other people on a team and and this discovery uh, undergoes a 
process where uh, two uh, individuals uh, communicate together and one uh, individual is uh, giving some information to another one but the process of giving uh, um, of the information uh, is uh, related to the individual's culture uh, and experience and uh, all these uh, personal uh, constraints and the same uh, is uh, valid for the person that is uh, receiving the information because this person can just interpret uh, it based on his uh, or hers own experience and uh, culture and uh, and uh, knowledge if, uh, i mean um, and skills so it means in the end that you are not really sure that what is being communicated from one person to another is uh, is exactly the same and in the book uh, i think uh, we gave this um, example based on the telephone game where uh, an information is uh, sent from one end to to another end and it uh, and it comes uh, completely distorted so uh, the hardest part in building software is just to discover the knowledge that is not distorted by uh, inter interpretation of different people and uh, uh, for that reason uh, for example domain driven design uh, gives uh, many tools that uh, uh, we can use uh, when the um, design of the domain model happens uh, uh, and uh, the discovery of different uh, uh, you know uh, concepts is happening so uh, they can be further refined uh, with business people and uh, the central point is that uh, we are uh, working uh, to build what is called ubiquitous language uh, where all the uh, concepts we are discussing with a team and business expert have a specific meaning in a given context so that is a very helpful tool to overcome these different uh, problems that uh, the interpretation of uh, in, uh, different individuals can bring Good. So, well, let's completely shift gears now and talk about one of your specialties, um, bitemporal models. Can you give a brief summary as to what is a bitemporal model? Why are they used? Yeah, so bitemporal uh, models are very useful when you have to... Um, track a different time axis uh, most of the time um, in a software in software we just uh, care about record time or um, as other people say transaction time when, when something happens 
but there are many uh, businesses uh, and yeah and for example if you need to have like a historical uh, uh, table and to track uh, what different changes and for what reason uh, happened people are just be building ad hoc you know uh, features in the into the software to provide those um, uh, features and uh, by temporality uh, it just uh, says that because we have those two axes uh, so the transaction or record time and uh, and another time axis which is uh, provided by the business people uh, which uh, most of the time we refer to as validity time uh, helps to query uh, the data uh, with uh, those uh, different time axes and it allows you to answer questions like what the um, what uh, my system was at a specific point in time or what the state of my system should have been at that time because uh, it happens that some information is recorded uh, way uh, before it hap happens or way after it happened so we need to uh, somehow ensure um, that uh, when we record this information to the system we are saying that we are recording this information now but it, it uh, should be valid from uh, a different time uh, in the past or in the future yeah, yeah good explanation and probably a way to think about this is the the time lag is generally due to people right um, maybe when people work or when people sign documents when they decide to go through their inbox and find something that needs to be processed and if it was purely up to machines the time lag would be roughly inconsequential I would say, um, mm -hmm. because at least it would happen on the same day or within the same hour, usually. But when people get involved, this is what happens. I, I think, um, let's say that, you know, I think a classic example is a child is born on a Saturday and the government offices aren't open until Monday, and possibly it even takes Tuesday and Wednesday for them to process the record that a child was born on Saturday. Um, the, so there is the fact that the child was born on Saturday, but the office didn't record it until Wednesday, let's say. So there's roughly a five-day or four-and-a-half-day difference or something between that. Um, how do you describe the two points in time, validity and uh, so forth yeah so yeah I, I think what's important to understand here is that because we are able uh, to record those different times we are able to query uh, for example 
taking into account uh, those different times. For example, if I were to make a report uh, which says uh, how many children were born on that specific date, and if I took into account the record date, uh, or for example, the day before the birth was recorded, the system would give me that there were no ch uh, children born on that day because we have recorded this information a day later. And, uh, and if we just uh, take into account this validity date that was set certainly by a clerk and that's saying that this child is recorded or on uh, I know uh, first January, but it was born or I know 25th of December. We could query uh, and to say and and we would be able to answer that uh, on the first January we, uh, on, for example, or maybe 31 of December we should have known that the child was born, but it was not recorded in the system yet. So this is where bitemporality shine. And maybe most of the people um, just can't understand because uh, people are de dealing uh, with those different use cases by an ad hoc future, f future. So they say, okay, we have different dates, that uh, we have on different concepts uh, in our domain model. So we treat those dates as, mm, as regular data. For example, if we would have for this specific example, um, a, a file uh, with uh, the child information, the birthday would be like just a property of the the data property of the of the child it was born on that specific date but by temporality the, the concept is more rooted into how the data is stored because those uh, uh, access time access uh, uh, i'm talking about they are they are like uh, a central uh, persistence point for all information in the system so you would need to provide this uh, specific uh, validity date for every piece of information that you record in your system and that way you uh, have these historical state changes over the time that you can uh, explore using different queries uh, based on different times and uh, ironically this uh, concept seems very uh, simple but mo most of the databases or data store um, doesn't uh, ha have these querying features based on two time axis so that's uh, that's why you you have to provide some kind of implementation in their real life to support those cases. Right. And from a practical standpoint, let's say that the child um, grows to school age and they're not permitted to start school for 
an entire year because they weren't old enough uh, according to the records, right? Let's say that you had to be five years old to start kindergarten by, and you had to be five years old by September 1, but the records show that you were born September 5th. Well, you know, you have to wait um, 360 days to start school when, and in essence, you're losing a whole school year in, in your life, right? Time. Um, so mm-hmm. time matters. Now, personally, what if later on a government benefit is available once a year, but you have to qualify by a certain date? And again, you're going to have to wait whatever, maybe in this case, it could be like 370 days, right? Before you actually mm-hmm. qualify to get this benefit. Not that those are actual circumstances. Well, the school thing definitely is, but who knows how that could affect you. And so what you should have known by this date, you didn't know until this date, but we, we know now is the important, yes. what it should, what it should have been or how it is viewed. Yes. Very cool. And you use that, um, you used event sourcing and CQRS to solve that, uh, problem in a FinTech environment. Yes, this was uh, event sourcing is uh, is an approach to store uh, application data based on the uh, changes that happens uh, in the system. So it's uh, uh, not like a regular, uh, I mean, state persistence where we are. taking a snapshot of the current state and we are discarding the previous states and we record the the current state. So each time we do, uh, someone uh, does a modification uh, in the system, we are just taking the snapshot and we are storing it. And if we need historical data, we need to build uh, ad hoc features and historical tables to, to deal with that. Event sourcing, um, yeah, uh, th- there has to be a prior uh, work done before uh, we can use event sourcing uh, by uh, designing uh, different uh, events that are meaningful for the business. And those events uh, represent state changes uh, in the system. So, for example, if we have uh, a simple system like a shopping cart in an e-commerce um, uh, application, we could design with business people different state changes like an item added to sh- the shopping cart, item removed from the shopping cart, or uh, all, all those kinds of, uh, of events. And each time an event uh, is produced. We just store append this uh, new event to to the events that uh, were uh, already already produced, and that way uh, we can uh, have all the changes that ha- had happened since the beginning beginning of the uh, of the state. Uh, 
and each time we have to recalculate the current state we need to go through all the changes uh, and uh, recalculate the current state by applying those different changes so uh, it may seem like a very complicated approach but uh, the most important point is that by storing those different events and state changes we have the historical data for free that we can use uh, in a ways that business people don't even expect uh, at the time we uh, we uh, we are storing them so we uh, for this uh, financial project i working on we were using the event sourcing approach because we uh, business um, how to say uh, business people want to have um, this historical data uh, tracked for legal legal reasons and by the way this was the bitemporal uh, event sourcing because uh, as we said before bitemporality um, the most of the information uh, that were recorded in the system uh, were recorded uh, after uh, something uh, uh, had happened so when we business people were querying for the data uh, they were querying based on those two time axes where this information were actually recorded and when this uh, information applies to i mean on which date uh, this information applies and that's very important because uh, this approach helped us to deliver this uh, future without building a very complicated um, you know uh, historical or ad hoc tables uh, to deal with uh, you know different uh, uh, business use cases that they could have so every time we were working on a domain problem we were finding for example a new uh, domain concepts or new features uh, were added and we were basing that on this approach uh, of uh, event sourcing uh, by temporal event sourcing they had all those features to explore data uh, for free great so don't allow <clears throat> the speed of postal delivery and human access and response time to hurt your business. That's a good way to yes. <laughs> get it. So, well, Tomasz, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. Of course, we talk often and uh, Slack message each other a lot, but um, nice to be in person uh, sort of <laughs> today and uh, um, look forward to the work that we continue to do together. And we'll, of course, announce more about that as the time comes. One thing we need to deliver is the implementing strategic monoliths and microservices book, which is on the way, but taking longer than we had hoped for. But that's because we're both very busy. And that's not a bad thing, right? Um, yes. So, 
Well, um, let's uh, think about another time when we can carry on maybe a specifically more discussion about bitemporal and solutions, concrete solutions to that. And we'll yeah. take it from there. Yes. Yes, thank you for for this discussion and for having me on the podcast. It was a real pleasure. So yes, I'm really looking forward for for next time. All right. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele, makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.